Welcome to the Mobility Innovators Podcast. Hello everyone. I'm so happy to welcome all listeners from around the world to the Mobility Innovators Podcast. I'm your host Jashpal Singh. Mobility Innovator Podcast invites key innovators in the transportation and logistics sector to share their thought about the key changes in the sector, about their work and what is their forecast for the future. Today I'll be speaking with an urban planner turned innovator. He's a digital mobility expert, entrepreneur, startup advisor and thought leader who understands and is equally passionate about the intersection of cities, movement and technology. He worked for more than 15 years in the USA in different roles, helping city to plan mobility and transport infrastructure. Later, he moved to Europe and worked with multiple startup in an operation and business role. In this podcast, we discuss various topics including future of mobility, public transport sector in Europe, the idea of 15 minute city, evolution of micro mobility and growing startup ecosystem in Europe. I'm so happy to welcome Scott Shefford, Chief Commercial and Product Officer, Assist to Be. It's now time to listen and learn. Hello Scott, thank you so much for joining us on the show. I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate Jasper. So today I'll be spending time getting to know about you, about your professional journey and your thought on innovation in mobility sector. To begin with, I would like you to share a little bit about yourself with our listener and also are there any interesting fact about your career that are not on LinkedIn? Yeah, because everything's on LinkedIn, <laughs> right? So yeah, a little bit about myself. Uh, so yeah, I'm Scott Shepherd. I am trained as a geographer and urban planner. So I love cities. I love maps and I love data. And that's been kind of a constant theme across my 22, 23 plus uh, career um, in North America, in the US, and now here in Europe for the last five years. Um, yeah, so I've held many different roles in government, private sector, consulting, uh, operations, and now I've been really focused on the mobility startup sector for the last uh, five years. Um, and it's been a very interesting, circuitous journey. If anyone's seen my LinkedIn profile, they'll, 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 that'll come up to light themselves and understand. Uh, but again, I think mine has been really uh, layering in more insights related to this uh, passion for uh, just the, the physical, I would say form and structure of cities, of understanding how uh, people live and move and act, and then really kind of embracing this focus now, I would say the last 10 years on the specific subject, pivoting a, a bit away from generalist land use and urban planning towards transportation planning and mobility. That's really yeah. been my focus in the public sector now in the startup world. And uh, in the last five years, since we've relocated my family and I to Europe, to here, to Lisbon, Portugal, it's been really um, in digital mobility. So startups that are focused on mobility as a service, on-demand mobility, and riding that whole wave of innovation or hype, either way you want to call it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, could, you could say smart cities, you could say micromobility, kind of dabbled in all these different areas and domains. Um, and just a kind of a, a quick fun fact of something that's really not highlighted in my LinkedIn profile that I would say uh, would be maybe, I don't know, it could be interesting or not, is my first internship after college when I graduated with a uh, Bachelor's of Geography from yeah. the University of Vermont uh, in the late 90s was I was focused on producing 
digital maps and cartography for the recreation sector for hikers and skiers, which was interesting because I used to live in the state of Vermont for about nine years. And it, there's such a outdoors, uh, you know, recreational tourism economy there. So yeah. I got to actually map out and GPS the hiking trails and biking trails in Stowe, Vermont and Burlington, Vermont. And it was like the dream job. I mean, I was only paid like six bucks an hour. <laughs> I guess it wasn't an unpaid internship, which is good. I was paid, but, and I did that for about eight months. So this was during and after I graduated, but it was really interesting because I felt like, wow, I chose the right field. Obviously it ended after the internship was over, but it just felt like, uh, wow, if you could actually choose the right field and do pursue something that uh, blends, you know, outdoor recreation with your own field of study in uh, college, then you're on to something. And uh, I've taken some different twists and turns in my career, but again, that consistency has been kind of maps and data and understanding just the, the spatial world, the physical world. And yeah, I, I, that, that's been one something one thing I've tried to uh, to maintain and uh, keep keep real. <laughs> so. Amazing, uh, quite impressive. I would say you know your journey so far, and now I know if anybody lost in those hiking trail and biking trail, who's the right person to contact it? You know, yeah. If you lost <laughs> Vermont, I'm the one that mapped those out back yeah. in like 1990. <laughs> and also to help to find because now you studied each and every point in those points, so that's great, yeah. amazing. Yeah. It's uh, it's fun to understand what you do after your internship because sometimes it shape up your career in a way you never ever mm -hmm. imagine like you mentioned you did your bachelor in geography and your master mm -hmm. uh, in city planning uh, city from planning, san diego yes. state university you know you started mm -hmm. your career as a transport planner and uh, but you did a major shift in 2014 when you become a vp of business development yes uh, i did yeah and i i know you worked with a lot of these cities and transit agencies in us uh, but later you decided to move like you mentioned with your family Mm -hmm. and uh, work with the startups in Europe and all. Mm -hmm. So would love to know a little bit about your journey in the transit world. How was it? And what did you learn during that phase, uh, both in US and in Europe? Uh, but mother, my main question is that you move from a car-oriented society to a transit-oriented society. Oh yeah, gosh. so it's a different world. Yeah. And uh, at the same time, I feel it's, uh, it's also a shift from an innovation-led society to a policy-led society. In Europe, we have mm -hmm. more policy-driven decision-making and all. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. you have seen both the continent very closely now. So mm -hmm. what do you think both North America and Europe can learn from each other? Okay. Well, uh, just quickly about my own journey and then how that translates to, yeah. So it was a family decision. We decided to relocate to Europe. My wife is Portuguese, so she's an academic. She's pursuing her uh, doctorate degree here. So we decided to, uh, what became kind of a, um, I would say uh, a temporary move became more of a permanent move. And now I've kind of really embraced the whole kind of startup mobility sector here in Europe. And I've seen kind of these different, I would say cultures as well as the different business practices, the different clients and the different uh, you know ways that uh, cities function and operate. But in terms of lessons learned uh, transatlantic between US or North America to Europe and vice versa, something I've written quite a bit about actually last three or four years. It's something I've really focused on or to use the Yiddish term, it's my shtick. It's my little, yeah. it's my angle. I really try to kind of promote this as this American dispatched in Europe reporting from abroad, talking about what I see here in Iberia and Europe and comparing that to what I experienced in the US or California 
in a very autocentric uh, culture in the most autocentric city of the autocentric state, you know, Los Angeles, that whole thing. And obviously, as you may or may not know, I wrote an article on this that one of the actual deciding factors of us moving to Europe was that I we would go to a one car household. So okay. I maintained that I was so burnt out of commuting and maintaining two or three automobiles and doing that whole process for years and years in California across the US, I decided, you know, I needed a clean break from that, not only a continent, but going into a new lifestyle. So um, that bore fruit. And now I've been basically without a driver's license for four and a half years, and I will mm -hmm. never go back. Even if we were to ever move back to the US, I will not own a car, although that's more difficult there. But I think that's part of this whole kind of personal and professional journey. And then tying it back to what I've learned here versus what I remember back in the US or vice versa, because I have kind of pontificated on that quite a bit, yeah. um, is really, yeah, it's a, it's a focus on the uh, roles of the public and private sector. That's one of the biggest, biggest takeaways I notice between Europe and North America one. Um, we can kind of twist it or maybe repackage it of innovation versus traditionalist, but it's a real kind of social construct too of the role of mobility and public transportation here in Europe versus yeah. the role in North America or in the US. Let's, let's leave maybe Canada out of the equation for a second, but at least in the United States. And the United States really, um, as the viewers and listeners would all know, in the public sector in the US and public transit agencies, uh, to use the French term, is laissez-faire. It's hands-off. It's very light touch, minimal intervention, market-driven. Innovation, that's great. You know, you have a lot of innovation test labs. You have many different um, pilot projects. You have yeah. many different startup competitions. You have Smart Columbus in Ohio. You have the Transit Tech in uh, New York City. What, what's the name of the program that N N New York MTA has? I've, you'll have to remind me. Yeah, it's yeah. a Transit so, Tech lab. Yeah, yeah right. so you have the transit tech. So this is all part of the kind of American innovation of attracting the private sector to bring the best and the brightest to the forefront. Um, and, and this is great. And I, I'm a huge proponent of that. But in terms of this balance between the proper role and stewardship of the public sector and public transit authorities and agencies versus the role, the proper role of, to use the cliche now, what is the role of private vendors, the role of the, the company that I represent, Assisted B, or other transit tech vendors, whether they offer on-demand services or they offer mobility as a service or anything else? You know, I don't want to call it a slippery slope, but there's a bit of a gray area in terms of really positioning these, uh, I would say, innovation solutions that can be fully operationalized, that can be sustainable, I'm talking about North America now, yeah. and that can be scaled to a level that they become a, a benefit or an asset for the public sector to serve their stakeholders, their taxpayers, and their constituency. Getting away from these short-term grant-funded projects, these yeah. quick wins, as we see, you know, these six-month projects, shiny objects, to something that can really move the needle. Whereas here in Europe, the innovation cycle is much slower. It's more policy driven. It's more comprehensive. So we have the entire process that is rooted in regionalism and metropolitan, um, I would say, urbanized units. Um, so the, the entire urban planning process here is based on regionalism, as you know, 
and yeah. mobility. So the common thread is to use the um, the uh, it's the acronym is the SUMP S U M P the Sustainable Urban Mobility Plan that yeah. does not exist in North America at all. There's 256 SUMPs in the European Union. So yeah. when you take that approach, everything from a it might be a slower moving ship, but everything in that takes a more logical approach of the interconnectivity of the built environment, the physical environment, the digital environment, and how the pieces flow. So it may, well, one could argue that could be more of a barrier to entry to new innovation, but I would challenge that, that there's plenty of opportunities for new innovation in Europe and certainly in UK as well too, but it's a bit of a different role in terms of startups in the private sector, companies like myself have to understand the rules of engagement. We cannot run roughshod and just yeah. deploy solutions without asking for permission. So we have to understand that there has to be a value to present to the public sector such that there will be a meaningful discussion and then embracing the business models that might yield lower margins at first from a commercial perspective, but they are here for the long term. Yeah. So that we see this in the micromobility world right now. We're seeing massive success from many of the uh, scooter startups right now, such yeah. as Bolt, such as Tier, and such as Voy. They take much more of the European approach to private sector innovation because they work nice with cities and they understand the rules of engagement. They understand this kind of Eurocentric process to not necessarily avoiding the public sector, but they're hitting all the right notes to make sure that they are embedding themselves in a digital or physical offer that um, is really providing a public good. It yeah. all is about the Commonwealth and providing a public good. It's not about nationalizing things or making things public domain and the state takes over the scooter share and there's no private sector innovation, not at all, but it's understanding this real nuance. So there's not this, um, like the scooter wars we saw in 2017 in the US where scooters yeah. were thrown in sidewalks and creeks because cities were so angered and pissed off that there was no dialogue. So I think we've learned a lot of lessons. I'm not saying that the European model is better than North American model, but what I've seen on both sides of the Atlantic, whether it's mobility as a service, whether it's micromobility, or whether it's other software as a solution startups in the mobility select sector, it's understanding the rules of engagement, understanding the proper role of public versus private. That's, I'd say, one of the key takeaways, being an American dispatch in Europe and learning those hard lessons and then um, trying to kind of pivot and, and work in a landscape that does encourage innovation, but in a, in a more long range approach, not a quick win, not yeah. you know a, a, a quick win over six months, but over many years. No, all these are great points. Thanks for sharing that. And I, I fully agree with you. Sometimes these quick wins are not good uh, because startups get uh, just six months of uh, highlight project and all, but after that, there is yeah. no future. Well, that's all the right. runway they have maybe, right? Yeah, and that's all the runway <laughs> they, just they don't have. have the funding. And, <laughs> and, and uh, in Europe, uh, there is uh, that approach of long-term engagement and creating a structure and all. Uh, mm -hmm. And we will be discussing about this point about micro mobility in detail because yeah, I fully agree with you. Yeah. How I got ahead of myself on that one. <laughs> yeah, no, but it's a, it's a, it's great you mentioned about those points and all. But we will we will be discussing. But it's great you mentioned about there are two sixty some project uh, some plan in in Europe. I mean, I think these yeah. all can be the great case studies for anybody who's interested to learn urban planning or transport planning. Absolutely. I, so and the the more I have 
discovered and embraced and really um, uh, kind of uh, understood this entire comprehensive uh, urban planning process that is really fixated on mobility as that common thread in metropolitan regions. It has uh, positioned myself now, um, even though I have a kind of a superficial knowledge of it, but I'm already becoming a champion of it, even as this American in Europe, because it just makes sense. Yeah. And it's something even in some of the um, innovation that we're leading with my company, Assist to Be, that we're bringing to market and embracing this comprehensive uh, approach to land use, public transport, and even private mobility and how everything is interwoven. There, these are not, um, I would say, segregated silos, which has been my experience in the American land use planning comprehensive process over many years, 10, 15 years ago, where you have a comprehensive land use plan and you have individual chapters, you have an economic development chapter, you have, an, you have a public health chapter, you have an infrastructure chapter, you have a land use chapter. There's some interconnectivity between the two, but each chapter is almost an individual narrative or an individual deliverable unto itself. And there's, I'm not saying there's no rhyme and reason but it, it creates this, I would say, balkanization of, I would say, the interplay of the, the future uh, policy ambitions of local, regional, and state governments that uh, seek to influence positive and sustainable land use change in yeah. metropolitan regions in the U.S. And it was always kind of a bit of a frustration for me. So it was kind of interesting to see how they basically just completely took that comprehensive planning process that was started in North America. It was educated to me that the SUMP process is actually rooted on comprehensive land use planning in the United States, yeah. but by fixating on mobility and transportation as that common thread, that was where it all naturally comes together. And they were able to actually come up with initiatives that were able to attract capital investment and infrastructure funding to uh, really reconfigure cities, even before COVID hit, even before a lot of the emergency funding hit and we saw the Corona bikeways, the pop-up bike lanes, and a lot of these uh, temporary interventions, which now became permanent, like in Milan with the car-free city center, Barcelona, yeah. uh, what's happening in Berlin right now, here, even in Lisbon. But these were all rooted, or these were all kind of concepts that were part of this sump framework but for luck or whatever we want to call it this may be one of the positive silver linings of covid other other people would disagree with me is that through an emergency i would say intervention many of these uh sump uh initiatives were at least able to be uh, trialed and um uh investigated yeah no that's true that's true that's uh Kind of our only silver lining from from the COVID that the only silver now people are, <laughs> the maybe people it was just are, good for the urban planners, right? I don't know, but yeah, <laughs> I was excited about the time, even though I was locked down, I couldn't leave my house, I was wearing a mask, but it was like, oh, at least we got pop up bike lanes and we got car free spaces, yeah. but I can't really go out and use them. No, <laughs> no, this this helped to change the city a little bit, and I can I can tell you from North America side also, like in Canada, I saw a lot of discussion started on yeah. the bike lane and reserving more space for cyclists and pedestrians rather yes. than just for cars and all. Now you mentioned that you are working in mobility space, uh, the startup space for last yes. five years now, and you work with two mass startup earlier, but now you're working yep. as a commercial chief commercial and product officer of Assisto. 
Yeah, now I'm out of mass. I'm not even working. <laughs> now out of mass. Uh, <laughs> and I'll discuss why that. We'll you know, is it, yeah, is yeah. it a choice or, or no. you have something more in mind? But, but can you share yeah. a little more about uh, Assistobe and what is the problem Assistobe solving? Yeah, yeah. So um, it's a little play on words. So it's assist to be. So as is to be. So it's like, you know, oh. it's just general management consulting speak. It's just a, it's, it's a fun word. We, we, our board of directors like, hmm, maybe we should change our name, you know, especially if we attract more investment or we go to series A, you know, maybe we need a, a cool term that's more mobility or transit friendly. And then we're like, nah, we like this. It's catchy. We're getting some positive feedback. We're just going to go with it. So yeah, it's assist to be. Um, so the problem that we're solving is really at the strategic planning level of public transportation or here in Europe, public transport, in North America, public transit, same thing. So what we're doing is trying to affect organizational and policy change at a 50,000 foot level for an entire public transit authority and um, to use more of the US term, uh, MPO, a Metropolitan Planning Organization. Yeah. And what we're doing is leveraging data science through our use of artificial intelligence and machine learning. I know it's becoming a little cliche now, everyone's saying this, but we're applying this to a really specific use case, meaning that we're using AI machine learning through leveraging a variety of data sources. And I think this might be another question we come up to later. Yeah. Okay, so I'll, I'll well, leave happy that to, If you want to share more, like- well, I mean, we've been, okay. yeah, yeah. So yeah, uh, we're, we're assembling a variety of data sources to understand the real historical and current uh, passenger demand of urban transportation systems. And this is a key differentiation because by doing so through our data science team, we're able to leverage and train our models in machine learning to come up with either short-term optimizations yeah. for tweaking and making changes to your public transit network in the short term. And these changes can be fiscal, they can be financial, they yeah. can be operational, so level of service, changing frequency, changing occupancy, that standard stuff. They can be qualitative, so they can be passenger comfort. So again, this comes down to uh, frequencies, standing room, that kind of thing. So how do you deliver a better service to your passengers? And they can be uh, environmental, so uh, for decarbonization purposes. So yeah. understanding, um, working on optimization KPIs, to come up with better uh, carbon footprint outputs. So there's about four different methods in our optimization model using AI machine learning through data science of these multiple data sources that I'll speak about later, training yeah. our model to come up with short-term optimizations, one, or running automated prognoses, predictions to come up with either seven-day or 30-day advanced look automated. So that's one thing. And then the final aspect of what we're bringing to market or the value that we're adding is developing a comprehensive land use and transportation planning tool yeah. that is similar to geographic information systems or transportation modeling systems, but different. And it's different because again, it's a strategic planning tool. Yeah. Our platform covers three steps explore, optimize, and plan. So this is the chronology of the transportation planning, I would say, world. In mm -hmm. our plan module, which is the third step, allows for a, mul a multitude of stakeholders to run either manual or automated scenarios of future land use, urbanization, and transportation network expansions or redesigns. And this does not seek to replace the work of 
public transportation consultancies, the private sector consultancies are architecture engineering firms. And this does not also seek to replace the, the complex GIS or transportation demand modeling softwares. Yeah. This is this seeks to augment or complement those by providing an organizational and a policy change tool for strategic planning. So a variety of stakeholders within a public agency or authority can have better data-driven decisions and better conversations. There's five different stakeholders that we target in a public authority. They're the service planners. They are the operators. Mm -hmm. They are the executive office. They are the engineering capital public works. And they are the finance office. By providing a view into all five of these different user profiles, we're able to embed our platform to really affect organizational policy change. And that these are the power centers, the, the decision-making centers of public authorities. They hold the treasury, they hold the purse, they hold the political power and the decision-making power. This is not to criticize or minimize the role of service planners or schedules. They're just as important in a public transport authority, but many other tools in the marketplace only focus on the service planner or the data scientist or the highly trained specialized expert. We're trying to kind of democratize that process by, bearing, by developing a very intuitive, easy to use platform that all different stakeholders can derive their own meaningful insights and affect organizational change. So that's why we exist as a company. Well, that's, uh, that's quite interesting. And in fact, uh, I was thinking that actually you didn't change your role. So earlier you were working on a mass project, which was external. But now yeah, you're yeah. working on a project which is internal because, uh, yeah. like you rightly said, yep. there was yep. no application which integrated the finance and the operation and planning and That's engineering right. uh, and That's as right. well as the operator. So it's quite interesting Apex, Apex. Exactly. <laughs> that you are bringing all these departments That's together. Right. And, uh, yep. and I think it's important, like uh, you mentioned earlier, there was... Uh, no tool available so you can't do that but now there are with the technology with the al uh, with the machine learning and ai mm -hmm. you can do all these kind of stuff and bring all these mm -hmm. departments together and not mm -hmm. only can see the impact on passenger but can also see the impact of planning on the financial side of the business exactly and and can the plan your stuff based on where the, the transigency, if not making money at least can save some cost and uh, not and losing at the same time problem. Uh, the point which you mentioned, which is quite important, is the passenger comfort without compromising uh, right. with the passenger comfort to provide. Mm -hmm. Now, mm -hmm. you you gave that uh, good example what assist to be is doing, which is mm -hmm. I like the name. Uh, that's how mm -hmm. everyone should be. Uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, I want to go a little more specific uh, with the mm -hmm. first pilot project you are doing with uh, Koipeda yes. Public Transport in, mm -hmm. in Koipeda, yes. Lithuania. So you are actually yes. helping the city to understand real passenger demand distribution and mm -hmm. behavior in the short term. That's right. Uh, also, you're using machine learning and AI to help the operator to replan their schedule and frequency and match service with the consumer preference in real time. So not only mm -hmm. creating a one side view of world and saying, okay, we should replan the service, but also considering the consumer uh, preference and how they want to look and use the service so you will not only help them to understand the past trend but you will actually make a prediction for next seven days based on the real passenger demand and optimize their schedule and save cost and all so it's it's look quite interesting and uh, yeah. as a as a planner as somebody who's working in the transportation can can vouch for it that it's quite interesting so i'm curious to learn uh, about some of the early results from this project and uh, how will the transit uh, network change 
after mm-hmm. the implementation of the complete system like you mentioned about explore optimize and plan how yeah. the system will change once you have a plan module and like you were touching that point earlier is what kind of data you will use to train the algorithm because yeah. that's mm-hmm. a key challenge uh, algorithm it's uh, like a lot of people say artificial intelligence but you need a lot of data to train right. that ai system and uh, how will you source that because that's one of the key mm-hmm. challenge that how to get the data to source yep. the ai yeah um so the clypeda uh use case uh that we've kind of published and announced uh what they're doing right now um so they're one of our clients um in uh, lithuania in the baltics so we're working with their public transport authority they're a bus uh bus authority yeah. they don't not have light rail but bus and um we're working with them right now on their um increased passenger demand in this uh post covid post lockdown uh mode right now so what they've basically understood in their own uh, legacy systems in their own um, data data analytics uh, platforms through power bi and other sources is they're experiencing an average about um, a two percent passenger increase week over week it's it's plateaued to about one percent increase but it's much uh, much more rapid uh passenger ridership increase than they had previously estimated let's say in the february or march time frame so there's a bit of a challenge right now to meet this unmatched demand right now in terms of their supply and rebalancing their network. So what they're doing right now as we speak in early June is they're going through more of the manual process of the rescheduling, uh, changing their timetables, changing the frequencies of their existing bus network, and they're gonna be evaluating their their results. But they're gonna be using the SysB tool in our optimize module to evaluate the results of their uh, interventions and the rescheduling aspects to look at these historical short-term changes and then run uh, new what-if analyses based upon uh, better passenger comfort, uh, operational cost savings, as well as adjusting their occupancy and frequency to come up with new assumptions as we move later into the summer. So we're going to be doing some spot checks over the next few weeks of how the um, passenger uh, distribution has changed, let's say, in early June. We're going to be validating those results as we move into July, running this system tool, ingesting that data, which I'll talk about in a moment, and then coming up with these different, I would say, scenarios that we'll be able to save and then uh, run a baseline and then come up with new uh, what-if analyses so that they can basically start operationalizing this. And then basically starting to use this system tool not to replace more of their formalized uh, you know, scheduling legacy process, but basically informing from a strategic planning level how they can do these, I would say, iterative spot checks and then uh, come up with some more interesting, uh, I would say, um, assumptions that could be uh, an alternative to more of the orthodoxy of service planning. So this is how we're going to make our tool sticky. We wanna make it almost OCD, obsessive compulsive. We want to have the users be addicted to the tool because they're going to be so interested in playing around with these different data combinations that they're going to really derive some really interesting insights and they're going to want to share it and they're going to want to evangelize it and they're going to want to really start understanding what these trade-offs are and then they can circle back into more of the traditional scheduling process the traditional running your demand modeling process that would be more yeah. in the plan module etc so ours is more of an iterative tool whether it's in short-term optimizations of near-term data or long-range planning assumptions, which I'll talk about in a moment. 
that we're bridging that gap between the legacy tools, the processes, and the lack of insights, again, within the organizations that are, are lacking right now. But getting to uh, our ambitions of building out our plan module, that's the third step in the assist to be journey. Yeah. So we've already um, unveiled our explore module in April. Okay. We're in the process of um, unveiling now at the Move London conference next week, our optimized module, and that will be live for all our pilot customers and new commercial customers. And then our plan module will be live in August. And that's where we will follow up and work with Clypeda and all our other customers on planning out their future uh, tr uh, transit networks and doing okay. these what-if analyses of synthesizing land use, transit demand, other urbanizations, and coming up with these interesting assumptions related to either uh, network redesign, but at a very high level, not stuff that the real detailed transport consultancies like Walker and Associates does in Portland, Oregon, or all the different transport consultancy. We know we're not obviously not going to replace any of the work that they do. They're doing the really detailed bus network redesign, but yeah. we're empowering the uh, PTAs and PTOs to at least start having a better dialogue and maybe even some of these transport consultancies using our tool to have much more of this meaningful collaborative uh, discussion so that these short-term, uh, I would say, uh, interventions can be exposed so that there's, there's a much shorter, I would say, time to market in terms of waiting for these long-range comprehensive assumptions or studies to be published and generated. This really, uh, it, it, it's, it's much more of a iterative process that allows for this uh, interim approach of the yeah. uh, more orthodox uh, transportation planning, um, you know, uh, model. Well, that, that's quite interesting. Like you rightly mentioned, it's uh, important to diagnose the problem first before yes. even going into the detailed plan. So uh, assist to be tool can help city to understand which are the area they should start going for the a deeper. Spots. Yeah. The what problem. are the hot spots? Yeah. What are Using the our issue scanner? It's like taking your car into mechanic and doing a tune up and finding out what, what's wrong with my automobile. So that's what we're doing with uh, public transit networks. Are there yeah. areas of over or under capacity is, are there areas where there are uh, fiscal overrun or constraints? Are there areas where there's passenger discomfort or a, a lack of sustainability in decarbonization? So all these outliers were helping yeah. expose this data to the public sector so they can start challenging these assumptions and ask better questions. That's it. We're just giving them the data they already have we're improving it, making it better, which I'll talk about data in a moment right now. Yeah. And then presenting that in a very intuitive, sticky, easy to use interface that requires basically no training. This is not a complex GIS uh, software tool that requires like 300 hours of training and certification. You pick up the tool and you understand immediately what is being presented to you, either in a table, in a map, or in a query. It's so simple. I mean, yeah, I, anyone could use it. So, and that, that's exactly what we're doing because we're, again, we're trying to democratize the process within public authorities and they're really challenged right now. It's like a no code uh, GIS tool. So you don't there need you to- go. I like it, I like it. Yeah, no code. Yeah, I've no done code, plenty uh, of coding in my world. And uh, I was so I was a certified GIS 
professional and I went to hundreds of hours of training and all. So yeah, I, that's, that's my own story in my own world, right? <laughs> and, I don't you want meant... to build that tool. Right? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's so complicated and you need so much training. It's just uh, a rabbit hole. I mean, yeah. every single drop down menu and button is like hours of training just to get some level of return on your investment. I mean, we're yeah. spending tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars in software licenses for just specialists to operate these tools, maybe one or two people in a hundred or 200 person organization. And they are presenting their maps or their charts to everyone. But unfortunately, then you've created a world of gatekeepers and they hoard the data, they hoard the results and not others can really uh, have some meaningful conversation around what is happening in the, uh, in the agency or in the the general city. Um, so this comes really back to your second part of the question is around data. So the data is really, that's, um, you know, that, that's really the value that AssistDB brings. It's not our user interface. It's not even how we present or represent the data, which is very simplistic and very intuitive, but it's the data science and how we derive insights from a variety of different hardware and software sensors to basically serve back a higher quality product to our clients, meaning that unlike many other competitors or other offers on the market, we're not just taking commercial off-the-shelf third-party data sources like census data, like land use data, this and that, and just throwing it in a map and representing that in a tool. What we're doing is we're actually spending five, six weeks in a detailed onboarding process. We're doing about 99% of the work working with each one of our public sector clients We're taking data from, of course, the easiest source would be APIs like GTFS. We do work with that. Of course, we love that. We work with uh, NetX. That's another API uh, data source. We work, we're going to be working with private mobility data sources, micromobility, such as MDS, such as GBFS, and such as maybe GOFS when that's, when Mm. that goes live and other sources. So public and private mobility, but also more of the uh, hardware sensors too, of course, like passenger counting systems, like ticketing systems, and then even broader multimodal data uh, solutions like telecommunications data. We have a commercial partnership with Telia data. They're one of the largest telecommunications providers in Scandinavia, in Mm. Norway, Sweden, Finland, Estonia, and I think even Denmark. So all of these data sources are basically bundled, bundled, packaged, cleansed, and served back to our customers in a data onboarding process. It takes roughly about five weeks or so, but okay. it's time well spent. We do not even expose our tool to our clients until the data is right. Because as we know, garbage in, garbage out. Oh yeah. So if we bring garbage in, we're going to spit garbage out. And it's a very superficial, uh, it's, it's a very transient tool that's only going to provide high level insights in a a cartographic output. But if we get the data right and we train our model, our AI machine learning model, not only can we present a higher quality of accuracy of the data, which is roughly about 85 to 90% accurate in terms of passenger distribution. So we're giving them a higher quality than that we give that they give to us. Yeah. But then we can train our model and make that data even better for short-term optimizations, automated prognoses, and then the long range urban planning scenarios. So it's, it's really the best of both worlds because if you spend the time getting the data right in that five or six weeks, oh, yeah. then you're giving a, to use the British term, it's bespoke, it's customized. This is not off the shelf, but it's customized. And that's part of our commercial offer. We charge a service for that data onboarding. It's part of what we 
propose to our clients as part of our software as a service, but customers see the value in that because they're getting a superior output and more in actionable insights into their data. And that's, again, another reason why we exist. It's not our UI and UX, which is wonderful. We have an excellent product and design team, but it's really the data behind the scenes. It's, it's the tip of the iceberg effect. I think that's very important because if it's garbage in it, it'll be garbage out. So no way if you have Story a my life. Story yeah. My life. So you have to first perfect the, what kind of data you are inputting in the system and then uh, get some valuable result out of it. And also the interpretation is important. Getting some graphs and some diagram is, is good, but if you're not it's able good. to make any decision, it has no use. It has so. to be actionable. That's the decision. And that's why we're building our tool to be actionable across the decision-making power centers in a public authority. Yeah. And some, sometimes that's a service planner, but many times it's not. Mm-hmm. Many times they're, they're performing a function. We do like service planners, but there are other stakeholders that we need to empower to and make sure that they can take data-driven decisions. And that's a, another reason why our tool is very important. Yeah, no, I think the world is becoming that, that uh, every tool should be able to use by everyone. There should not be any barrier for using tools. So it's it a should high not barrier be... to entry right now yeah. in many Otherwise, these different tools. Like doing anything on the map. And that's how the Google map and other tools are making it more and more easier people to. That's right. To... Yeah, so let's do that. Now, you know, we have seen the last year has been a big shift in the mobility sector, not only the Mm -hmm. public uh, transport player, but also the mobility player in the private Mm -hmm. sector also suffered. Yeah. And uh, the reason is the travel behavior and the travel pattern Mm -hmm. have changed. Uh, Mm -hmm. In fact, when I spoke to some of the city in some of the city, there are more traveler in the transit system during the weekend than Mm -hmm. on the weekdays, there is a Mm -hmm. complete shift. So the job of transit agency, and like you mentioned, the service planner is becoming more and more difficult because the things are so dynamic and so fluid. So there is an opportunity in adversity. So we are seeing a tough time, but I always see as a, as an opportunity because you can innovate because good time, Mm -hmm. make you lazy and uh, hard time, make you more innovative. Mm -hmm. So can you share how this crisis will need some unique solution for, for transit agencies? And how will the artificial intelligence and machine learning can help to improve the transit KPI? How can we leverage the technology to improve the service, not only from the cost point of view, but also from the customer point of view? Okay. Um, yeah. So during and now as we move, hopefully, I think we are outside of COVID, but we'll see. <laughs> <through this process. laughs> uh, they, I keep changing different stories every day. But um, yeah, yeah uh, but in this new uh, travel, uh, you know, mobility demand in public and private mobility and how it's impacting public transits. Uh, yeah, we're seeing different uh, uh, distribution across space and time. So we've moved away from the standard five-day commutes, a.m., p.m., peak, off-peak period, the yep. orthodox, you know, um, uh, transportation, uh, transit planning um, uh, process to something that is distributed across uh, weekdays and weekends and different hours in the day. So we're seeing multiple peak periods now yep. across multiple days, and it's not consistent Monday through Friday now. So we're seeing different days with different hot spots. If we're seeing about maybe four or five peaks now per day across maybe two or three days. Now we're seeing some interesting peaks, maybe not Sundays, but Saturdays. So, and we're seeing new interesting, I would say distributions of uh, modal split and usage of public transport on a more uh, polycentric manner. So if you were to look at a metropolitan region, so if we talk about London, we talk about Los Angeles, we talk yeah. about New York or Tokyo, 
we're seeing a much more polycentric distribution of mobility than we did 24 to 36 months ago. So that was, you know, suburb to CBD, CBD to suburb, in, out, in, out. Now we're seeing much more of a neighborhood-centric pattern, localized yeah. travel. Uh, VMT has been reduced, so we're seeing uh, shorter trips. We're seeing more frequent trips across different times of day. We're seeing trips that are being distributed to more neighborhood uh, uh, centers. You know, even Los Angeles at one point in time, it's my hometown, was coined um, as the polycentric city, and it really is. It's a city of villages, and quite honestly, even London is too. Yeah, it's not just one central business district, even though both cities, you have the city of London, you have a downtown Los Angeles, but you have many different 20, 30, 40 nodes across a region of eight, nine million people. And really what we're seeing COVID or post COVID is lending towards that natural kind of neighborhood human centric activity yeah. of, I would say, urbanism that lends itself to more sustainable mobility, but the impacts on public transit are that they're having to rebalance their passenger distribution models, their demand, their level of service, and challenging their orthodoxy over the last uh, 80 years, 75 years since the Second World War. Yeah. So basically everything is upside down right now. But if you're an urbanist like me or even like yourself, it's pretty cool. I like it because this lends itself to the 15-minute city, right? This lends yeah. itself to really interesting types of interaction within the built environment. Some stuff that's happening that makes the entire metropolitan region uh, fun and interesting and discoverable so that we're not just robots all commuting at the same time on a freeway or on a bus and a train or you know going to the downtown and going back to the suburbs. But we're discovering new neighborhoods. We're, we're blending our schedules. We have hybrid work environments now. So I won't even get into that unless you want me to, but we can talk about the new the work environment yeah. and how the whole uh, office model has changed, which is obviously that feeds into this whole new passenger distribution and movement. But I think the entire city as a whole is being rediscovered. And I think that that's mm -hmm. a positive outcome of COVID. Not only is active transportation front and center, so walking and cycling and more you know uh, healthy forms of mobility, but people are rediscovering public transit across different neighborhoods, across different times, and understanding that there's much more to a city than what they thought of in 2019. And I think that's yeah. a really uh, great uh, out outcome of COVID if there is another silver lining. And then this is an opportunity for my company, it's just to be to work with public transit agencies to challenge these orthodoxies of uh, scheduling, passenger distribution, and uh, long-range transit planning and come up with new assumptions using AI machine learning, training their models, looking at special events, these kind of uh, new, I would say, outliers and these new trends uh, in, um, I would say, mobility patterns over the last 24 months and rebalancing their networks for new findings and new opportunities. Yeah. So we're very excited to work with public agencies to um, uh, make their services much more uh, consumer-centric and less ridership-centric. So it's putting yeah. the consumer first. So that's really a, a, another, I would say, paradigm shift in the public transit world is, is thinking consumer-centric versus passenger-centric. And of course, to use the cliche for mobility as a service, which has been my world over the last four years, is multimodality. 
course. Yeah. So now every PTA and PTO is forced. They didn't want to 24, 36 months ago, but they have to now. They have oh, yeah. to be multi. They have to. So not only does that mean deploying a mass app that integrates scooter share, bike share, on demand, and public transit, but in their entire consumer offer, they have to think of embracing private mobility as part of their door-to-door -door solution, as part of their consumer offer to make their, their, um, their service uh, in terms of leveraging uh, taxpayer subsidies, um, meaningful, and uh, I would say appealing to this more consumer-centric approach. So uh, again, to quote some others in the industry recently, it's uh, a, a shift in KPIs from tracking ridership to tracking uh, mobility uh, accessibility, hmm. mobility hmm. access versus ridership. So it's a much more qualitative metric now versus a quantitative metric. Yeah, and I think which is the need of the hour. You need to shift from that uh, ridership or revenue-based approach to human-centric approach. You need to understand- Human-centric approach, neighborhood-centric you know, approach. Neighborhood-centric approach. And, and in fact, mm -hmm. my next question is about that 15-minute city, which you just- There you go. We're talking about you know? <laughs> So That's... basically, there is a lot of discussion going on between this uh, concept of 10-minute delivery versus 15-minute city. Uh, there's oh, a lot of okay. noise yeah. about this rapid delivery concept that you can get your daily yeah. stuff in uh, 10 minutes. Uh, this okay. is good for consumer uh, because you can just order and everything will be at your doorstep in 10 minutes. But what planner wants, and, and you know, you are a planner at heart, yeah. is the 15 minute city where people mm -hmm. can avail basic necessity within 15 minutes of travel. Uh, Although the venture capitalists uh, are putting so much of money in this 10-minute delivery concept, they invested $15 mm -hmm. billion dollar in 10-minute mm -hmm. delivery startup since uh, the start of 2020. So within two years, yeah. $15 billion has gone in these companies, including Getir, Gorilla, GoPath, Joker. Mm -hmm. I mean, I can. Yep. the list is going on and on and on. But uh, we are not seeing much funding happening for building 15-minute city, which you just mentioned, mm -hmm. except in Singapore and few other places. Not many cities are talking about this 15-minute city concept. So my question is, uh, which way a city should go? Should they leave to have this 10-minute delivery startups to build the, mm -hmm. the rush hours and all? Or should the city should really work about this 15-minute city concept? And how urban planning can play a key role in this important scenario, like how yeah. urban planner can design the city in such a way. And do you also have any role model for others? Like, do you want to mm -hmm. share some example of that 15 minute cities for others? Yeah, so uh, there, there has been um, some interesting uh, opportunities yet tension between the public and private sector. A lot of it driven from uh, venture capital in these multiple waves of innovation over the last five years. I would say starting in 2016 to today. These waves, you know, included uh, autonomous vehicles, smart cities, uh, you know, scooter share, bike share, and now we're in on-demand delivery. And, uh, you know, this kind of the peak hype cycle, we look at the Gart Gartner quadrant and all that stuff. Where do yeah. these, what is it, the trough of disillusionment or whatever? Anyway, so I'm not quite sure where we're at on that. I mean, we're, we're kind of a little bit of mix for venture capital and on-demand delivery, although I've heard some troubling signals, but it can go both ways. Yeah. But in terms of the consumer, I would say demand for uh, 10 minute delivery and their appetite for that, um, pardon the pun, for on-demand like restaurant delivery or you know parcel delivery and that hitting a peak uh, during COVID. 
and how that's basically kind of blown up the entire retail and commercial model in um, more so North American cities. So it has not been as prevalent as you know, Joss Bell here in Europe. So the 10 minute delivery has not uh, received quite as much of a bullish push here uh, on this continent as North America, although it's certainly prevalent, the apps are everywhere, but it's done a bit more uh, cautious and a little bit more surgically. So again, the, the bullish aspect of on-demand delivery is clearly North America, US and Canada. Yeah. And urban planners play a key role in that. And there is obviously a tension between the 10-minute the on-demand consumer, I would say, um, model versus the 15-minute city, which is more based on, I would say, orthodox traditional urban planning principles. Because let's remember, the 15-minute city is not new, even though... Yeah. I'm not trying to criticize the work of Carlos Moreno or Anne, Anne Hidalgo or the city of Paris or many different cities that are introducing the concept of 15 minute city because I'm a massive proponent of that and of as well of tactical local urbanism. But to be very realistic, if you any one of us have been a, a student of urbanism, it's really a repackaging of traditional neighborhood uh, neighborhood um, uh, neighborhood development, TND yeah. or or market urbanism. So pre-industrial urbanism, localized urbanism before the industrial revolution. So we're talking yeah. Britain, we're talking Britain in you know the 16th, 17th century. So we're talking very localized activities that were pedestrian-centric, horse and buggy. Uh, so you have a catchment area, anything that you can walk to, that you can go to your store, you can go to your market, you can go to your apothecary, you can go. Yeah. Uh, perform your local needs. That is the 15-minute city. It's just a new brand on a local level, but it's imprinted on a metropolitan region because, again, three, four hundred years ago before the Industrial Revolution, we did not have megacities, right? Well, we had megacities 2,000 years ago, obviously ancient Rome, but a little thing like the Dark Ages happened, so the megacities disappeared. <laughs> so we didn't really have megacities again until the 20th century, right? So what we're doing is applying a pre-industrial revolution concept of urbanism onto a post-industrial or post-urban world, which yeah. is great. I'm a proponent of that, but that lends itself to a bit of tension because it, if there are more traditional urbanists, and I consider myself one in that sense because I do believe in more of that orthodoxy of neighborhood uh, human-centric uh, mobility and activity within a modern 21st century metropolitan built environment, which is great. You can have both at the same time, they're not diametrically opposed. There is yeah. a tension though now when you introduce venture capital and you introduce the private sector in promoting instant delivery and promoting on-demand or 10-minute deliveries that unfortunately, as we know, tend to uh, promote people being a bit more, what? Sedentary. So yeah. now they're not active. So what are they doing? They're not going out into the neighborhood. They're not part of that 15-minute city. They are on their couch. <laughs> <laughs> what was the movie? What was what was the movie where everyone was transported transported in pods? Uh, Wally, -E, the movie Wally, -E, -E, where everyone's and you know they're very sedentary and they're just moving around. There's no there's no activation. There's no uh, people aren't moving. So I, I'm not saying that they're diametrically opposed, but there has to be a, a careful balance, and that's really where, quite honestly, the the public sector has to take a more activist role. So that's where the urban planners like myself or ones that actually work for governments 
have to go in and take the best of private sector innovation like on-demand delivery, curbside delivery, and understand now that the curbside is a real estate asset. It's monetized. Yeah. Now we get that. We see many startups like Populous and uh, you know other um, uh, startups out of Silicon Valley and even out of the East Coast that are providing on-demand uh, mobility data insights that can help uh, public sector uh, municipalities understand and rebalance their uh, public right-of-way for uh, you know, Amazon, UPS, as well as uh, 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 restaurant deliveries. Yeah. So we're not trying to prevent that type of activity, but we're trying to integrate that within a policy framework. Now, this is where policy comes back in. So this is come back to the sump, right? Now we're now yeah. we're going to travel across the Atlantic, the sump. So the sump is not mutually exclusive, meaning that the sump, or if done right, a North American comprehensive urban plan, can embrace on-demand delivery. It can embrace, embrace aut autonomous vehicles and on-demand shuttles, but it has to be done in a way that promotes policy goals that are sustainable. So yeah. who is best uh, who's best trained or uh, I would say understands those insights? Uh, well, it's obviously the local community too. They're, maybe they're positioned better than urban planners, but yeah. it has to be a collection of stakeholders that can really start understanding how these different uh, levers can be utilized for a, uh, a more, I would say, greater good and a better policy outcome. So we do not want to pre prevent um, innovation because many different cities were um, firewalls to new innovations such as scooter share and bike share mm -hmm. as we saw in 2017, 2018. And they took too heavy handed approach. And they just banned permits, and then they told the private startups to uh, to pack their bags. So that's not a positive approach either. So we can embrace on-demand mobility and 10-minute deliveries, but we have to do so in a way that balances the public realm from the private realm. We understand, you know, the uh, public right of way. We understand passenger movement. We understand um, mobility flows in our transportation networks so that we do not come up with a outcome that uh, you know, uh, creates new congestion, new yeah. unsustainable outcomes, and completely privatizes the public domain so that the curbside becomes a complete, um, I would say, marketplace for on-demand providers. And there's no more space for senior citizens, for disabled, for children, and for yeah. people to just navigate and be part of the public realm. So th that is really where the, the public sector does need to take an activist, not a heavy handed role, but an activist role and be a champion for better public sustainable urban policy. That's the key. No, I like and, your answer. And promote the 50, 50 minute city in the process. No, I really like your answer because uh, that's how the thing should be. Not, uh, not uh, stopping any innovation, but at the same time, the public sector play an important role to make sure it's equitable to everybody. Not some people should get benefit of it and other people who yeah. are disadvantaged uh, left out, like you mentioned about old people. Like curbside management is good, but it shouldn't at the cost of people who actually need those spaces and uh, they couldn't be able to use it uh, and give benefit to only one small segment of the society. I really like your answer. Yeah, I mean, there's been pushback even on uh, robotic deliveries, right? I, you know, in Toronto, yeah. where you're at. I mean, there's been some pushback to that in the public domain, in the public right-of-way, in sidewalks. That's one specific use case. But 
again, we can't go too far in either one extreme. So yeah. VCs cannot completely privatize the public realm and cities and municipalities and transportation agencies cannot be a complete firewall to new private sector innovation. There has to be good public policy that embraces both. I like I like it. Uh, and uh, thank you for sharing that perspective because sometimes you always have one side of the uh, It's very binary. Yeah. <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's it very be. either pro-private sector, no uh, government intervention, anti-government, yeah. or pro-public sector, municipality, no startups. And that that's really just taking steps backwards we we shouldn't be having this zero-sum game discussion that that, that yeah, does no one any favors at all it should be win-win so now my next question is the point which you earlier discussed is about the evolution of uh, micro mobility in europe that how oh, yeah. the micro mobility emerged in europe so mm-hmm. in fact e-scooter mm-hmm. started in us with the uh, with when bird launched the first uh, e-scooter in 2017 yeah <laughs> and yeah. and in five bird years they have Monica. become so obvious everywhere. However, I say Europe is leading uh, the implementation of shared e-scooter bikes, e-bikes and all. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and I believe that the reason for same is like you mentioned, is a strong public led uh, policy framework or a Absolutely. strong public transport network. Uh, right. I would like to share this case from uh, when VOI did a pilot with the S-Bahn Stuttgart and the, did with Mobimio. Mm-hmm. Uh, they executed oh, a joint. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, they executed a joint pilot project in 2020. They found that uh, mm-hmm. with better integration, the public transport uses increased by 35 percent, mm-hmm. and yeah. use of micro mobility increased by 250 percent. So it was win-win for both of them. Of course. So now again, I ask you to put your planner hat and mm-hmm. uh, and tell us like why this micro mobility is a big success in Europe than in any <laughs> other place. And uh, is micromobility the future of transportation? Uh, what is going to be the biggest trend in micromobility over the next three to five years? Yeah, okay. So let's just take a trip down memory lane for a second and then we'll get to where we're at now. So yeah, yeah. Uh, so 2016, 2017, yeah. The first uh, scooter share uh, startups popped up in San Francisco and Santa Monica. So yeah, you have Lime and Bird and all that. So we know about that. And we know kind of the stories around how they started launching and then others quickly followed suit. And that led to the uh, scooter wars and everything around 2018. Um, And scooters hadn't entered the market yet in Europe at that point. So in 2018, no, there were no, no. I mean, I'm trying to remember here because I was still, I was in mobility service, but we were really focused on bike share and um, car share at the time, but not even scooter share. The scooter share, at least uh, for my former company, Free to Move, which is a subsidiary of now of Stellantis, PSA Group, you know, Peugeot Citroen. Yeah. Um, we were an integrator of uh, car share providers. And then we slowly started integrating scooter share at the time in Berlin, because that's where our home market was. But scooters didn't even start hitting the market in Germany and other European markets until around early 2019. And by yeah. summer of 2019, it was the wild west. So we were starting to see what North America saw, you know, maybe 18 months before that. Okay, so that's fine. We, we saw this real kind of peak hype, right? We didn't quite get some of the scooter wars here in Europe, but like you saw in North America or in the US, but we saw some interesting backlash where there was a complete negligence of, I would say, lobbying or outreach to public authorities in those early scooter days in 2019, 
that gave them a black eye. So I have to name a company here. We named some companies, that's Berg. And that was in Luxembourg. It was pretty embarrassing. So they basically cleared out their scooters in a day because Mm. they did not ask for permission at all. So they were basically copying the model as we know in Silicon Valley that had happened in the US for six years in uh, ride share and now in scooter share. And that was a, a real troubling signal for the scooter share operators in Europe. And they were like, oh boy, we got a problem on our hands here. Yeah. This, these rules of engagement that we were doing in the U.S. to some level of success, we were getting market share. We were getting a bunch of quote unquote champions that did not care if we had an operational permit, but we got enough people using our app so that we could demonstrate market traction and, and, and yeah. attract more series A, series B. So we made our investors happy. We had some happy customers with subsidized rides. Everyone's happy, right? Cities are pissed off, but everyone else is happy. Yeah. That does not fly here in Europe. No, 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 no. That does not fly. So they started with that. They were tinkering with that. And they started realizing that there was a different way of doing business. So we started seeing on the horizon some new players that were entering the market just before COVID hit. And those new players just in the scooter world were Voy out of Stockholm yeah. and Tube out of Berlin. So yeah. what did they do? They flipped that whole Lime Bird model on its head, they did the opposite, especially Voy. They started doing active engagement from the start with cities, not necessarily lobbying, but understanding what the actual challenges are, understanding the policy framework, understanding their actual, um, I would say, uh, mobility and transportation challenges, and then trying to weave in their offer in a way that was not only as less intrusive as possible, but started addressing some of the challenges that they were seeking related to their uh, gaps in accessibility related to mobility, some underserved areas. So by doing so, they were able to make a much better business case for at least demonstrating their service. And this is pre-public tenders. This is pre-RFPs. And they were able to deploy pilots on a much quicker basis than some of the American micromobility providers at the time. And you could start seeing a divergence in this whole kind of philosophy of micromobility. Okay. So then what happens? So March of 2020. So we're staring into the abyss, right? I'm on lockdown here in, in Lisbon. I don't know how bad it was for you in Toronto, but I couldn't leave my house for like three or four weeks. It sucked. It was, it was awful. (laughs) It was very dystopian, you know? So it's like, well, I could walk out of my house but I couldn't leave my town. So, you know, the whole thing, it was just, it was really weird for like late March, early April. So things started reopening and scooters share just dropped off, right? And there was no rides. I mean, they just basically had to eat it. And we know, again, back to Bird, you know, the layoff there and uh, all the other scooter share providers had to lay off a a huge percentage of their um, employees. But we saw some interesting things happen in micromobility because actually, from a labor and employee perspective, guess what? The European MSPs and mobility providers, they weren't laying off their employees though. They obviously had different labor contracts and models. So they had like in Germany and other countries, they had more of a furlough scheme where they were still paid a salary, but they weren't laid off and given like a stimulus check like in the US. Oh yeah. And they were off the payroll. So you have a different labor structure in Europe from there. But not only that, a lot of these venture capital backed micromobility providers made a pledge to keep their staff on payroll because they Mm -hmm. thought that that was part 
of the better business model that they were offering to their cities. And they realized that they had happy employees, they would have happy cities, they would have happy investors, and they would have a happy bottom line. That's it. Yeah. They just got it. It made complete business sense. I mean, not to say that they didn't do it because it was the golden rule, the right thing, but they knew that that's how they were going to scale once COVID started declining. And guess what? COVID started declining. We went through a few waves. We went yeah. through, you know, Alpha, went through Delta, went through Omicron, multiple waves. But each wave, they started gaining massive market traction. And guess what? Massive investments. Yeah. So now you have the big three on the market. You have Voy, you have Tier, and you have Bolt now. And Bolt obviously started as a uh, challenge to Uber here in Europe. Yeah. But just in rideshare, that was up until 2018. Now they're dominating the continent along with volunteer in bike share and scooter share. So that holy trinity, like I say, you know, to use the monotheistic world, you know, it doesn't matter what religion you are, but to use the cliche, that is really the holy trinity of micromobility in Europe right now is yeah. Bolt, Tier, and Voy. And they dom dominated because they took this approach to use my own hashtag cities first. Yeah. Really, they place cities in the public sector first. They realize that that is good for their bottom line. That's going to keep their investors happy. That's going to how they're. That's how they're going to scale. They're going to launch in more cities. They're going to win more contracts, and they're going to push out some of these American micro mobilities out of the market. Spin. They, they left Europe. They they got nudged out. They yeah. couldn't work in open permit markets, right? So the the real backstory is. They got nudged out because of market share, because Voy and Tier and Bolt were dominating. So a lot of the and 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 um, obviously Bird and Lime have uh, re-entered the market and they have redeployed, but there has not been as much of a mark, a consistent market expansion to the level of the European Big Three when you compare all of the operators post-COVID. And what yeah. I'm saying though is that. Lime and Bird have maintained their market share. They had a massive market share before COVID and they did not decline, but they have not expanded. But yeah. what you've seen with Voight here and Bolt is they have, they have eclipsed. Exactly. And that's because they've taken this new approach. So the, the, the two main micro, American micromobility operators have maintained their foothold and they've continued operation, but you haven't seen that level of expansion, which has pleased venture capitalists. They want to see expansion. They don't want to see status quo. They don't care about mm. status quo. They care about how many new cities you're going to launch in. And that's how you go to series D, series E, or you attract money from the European Investment Bank, which is yeah. what Bolt did. That is where the big money's at. And that's what they've been able to do because they took this approach that positioned the public sector and understood their needs. And that's how they've been able to win all these public closed permit markets as well, yeah. too. So, for example, like what happened in Oslo recently, where it was only the European big three, or no, it was, mm. no, it was Copenhagen. It was Void, Tier, and Bolt, nobody else. And ah. why? Because of this. They won, there was a finite market, three permits were offered in that RFP, they got them. That's a ah. perfect example of that. So, again, Spin was more of an outlier because they were taking much more of a campus-centric approach. Their approach was a bit less market share obviously they were subsidized at the time by ford motor company but ford sold them off now now they're part of tier right so it doesn't really matter so tier is rebranding as spin in the u.s so it's very interesting that what goes around comes around right yeah. they left <laughs> europe but now tier is colonizing north america under the spin brand so it's just amazing that 
what was originally an American colonization of micromobility on this continent is completely vice versa now. Now the Europeans are working towards North America. I think that's the biggest takeaway of 2022 right now. It's the biggest takeaway. Yeah, and it'll be interesting to see how they can replicate the success they have achieved in Europe, in North America. And and actually we are seeing in North American know. cities. Are... Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, because North American cities are not quite as accustomed to maybe um, some private mobility operators taking such of a collaborative approach. So I think they still have their um, resistance up in a way. And you still see many North American cities anti-scooter in a way. But I think Tier took a very smart approach that they're rebranding under a known quantity, which is spins. So that gives them an advantage. Yeah. I don't know what the approach is of Voy or Bolt or what their strategy is for entering the North American market at that point. Maybe someone else can comment on that. But I do see that um, in terms of the future of micromobility in North America and how they can become at least uh, sustainable or maybe profitable in the long term, yeah. they're going to definitely have to rethink the model of pre-2019. It might not necessarily be a completely Eurocentric approach which works here, because I don't think that will work in the US. Uh, maybe it is more of an approach that SPIN took. And SPIN was very successful, a lot of college campuses and certain closed permit markets in the US. Maybe that model works. I don't know, but I think that um, they're gonna have to, to change it up. Um, and it's gonna have to be maybe a blend of the European model and the US model and, and, and trying what works. But again, micromobility micro works best where there is the built environment, higher densities, the physical infrastructure and public transit has to be in place to lend itself to first and last mile. So yeah. in lower density cities or suburban districts where you have micromobility, maybe as a trial or a pilot, um, it might not be good in the long term in the US or even Canada. So I don't know. Yeah. Well, that's that's quite interesting. And thanks for sharing the full background about micromobility. I mean, I would mm -hmm. say this... Uh, 10, 15 minute is like a class of three, four hours where you can yes. learn yes. everything out how the micro yes. mobility evolve That's and right. how it works and it how out. it's uh, shaping up. So thank for sharing. Uh, in that sandbox. Yep. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. Now I want to touch on the, another important topic, which is close to your heart. It's uh, mobility mm -hmm. as a service because you oh, work yes. uh, with two startups uh, <laughs> in mass how, how can we forget about mass? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, first with the uh, free to move, you just mentioned a yeah. mass player. And later with iMob, which is yeah. a decentralized mass player. Yeah. So you've seen quite a bit different. Both, yeah. both the world and uh, and you yeah. understand from both sides, like why it should mm -hmm. work and why it should not work. Mm -hmm. So even though mass offer a great promise to provide seamless mobility as the cheapest cost. And to be honest, I am one of the big advocate for mass because I see an opportunity. But at the same yes, time, I we are too. not seeing a big success in this space. No, we are not. No, we're not. And and one of the key reason is the lack of business model and the trust among players. Uh, they don't yes. trust each other, yeah. so there is they are not coming forward. So I just want to understand, what do you think are the key reasons that it's still not mainstream? And if I can ask you two or three prediction in this area, what is the future of mm -hmm. mass look like? Okay. Um, yeah, I think that the two main lack of success factors or failure factors, let's talk about the failure factors. The failure factors, as you mentioned, are... 
unsustainable business model. It's just simply not profitable, at least yeah. under under a business consumer model. That that's dead on arrival. It's just not going to work. So they tried that out many different providers for about four years. And they finally realized up until about COVID that they just, they pivoted away from that. So all yeah. the mass providers other than maybe WIM, but I think WIM is finally pivoted away from that too, where they're focused much more on a indirect business model where you have to have some patron, this yeah. patron saint, this patron saint to mass has to be either a government or the patron saint is a corporate benefactor, like an employer. So someone has to pay for mass. Someone has to subsidize mass. It's not yeah. going to be the general public. They're not going to foot the bill because the startup is going to run out of money. They're going to run it out of uh, runway and they're going to go bankrupt. That's yeah. it. Mass does not work. So it's going to be business to business to consumer, B2B to C, or business to government to consumer. Those are the only two business models that have a chance of success. And those are even yet to be proven out either, but either theoretically those have a, a path to profitability at some point. Yeah. But again, that, come, that comes down to scale though, right? Because you have to have enough of these indirect business to consumer models that can open up in enough private mobility clients or enough cities that will pay for it. I don't know yet. We got to see because how can you scale this? How can you replicate this, right? Because that, that has to be uh, demonstrable to uh, venture capital. They want to see re replicable uh, recurring revenue. Yeah. And even if the recurring revenue is a software as a service, a license, whether it's ARR, annual recurring revenue, yeah. or MRR, monthly recurring revenue, just to make it really basic for everyone here, VCs want to see that, or even strategic investors. If they don't see that, they see you cannot launch enough cities who are going to pay for this and license your product, you know, paying a hundred thousand a year or whatever, and you spread that across 12 months, you got a problem, you got a real problem. <laughs> so that that's the first thing. The second is what you mentioned, the private mobility providers not playing well amongst themselves or not playing well with the mass provider or the aggregator or the public sector. And that's what we call um, commodification. Hmm. So they fear that they will lose their touch with the consumer. Yeah. So why, if you're a scooter share provider, are you going to be bundled or aggregated in a mass app? What, what value, what benefit do you have versus just using your own app and going right. direct to consumer? There has to be some hook or there has to be some benefit fiscally, commercially for you to want to integrate in a multimodal offer. Although we're seeing some promise on that. So the barriers to entry or the, this resistance to commodification is starting to subside right now in more interesting multimodal combinations. I'm still skeptical of the, um, the, uh, the business models penciling out yet. That's yet to be seen in this indirect model. I don't know yet. I'm not sure, but we'll come back to that. But in terms of the sphere of commodification, that's been uh, subsiding since COVID. We're seeing some interesting combinations where multimodal mass platforms are simply being offered by the scooter share, the bike share providers themselves. So yeah. they are basically bundling in other combined mobility to their offers and presenting the business case to their partners that it makes sense to join forces. That's one way. Or it could be Uber or Lyft. So we know what they're doing, right? So that yeah. we have that. So we have Ride Hail doing it. We have even Bike Share and Scooter Share doing it. And it's like bi-directional right now. It's like the Wild West. It's Everyone's going multimodal right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then That's again, true. yeah, so we have that. And then, of course, we have multimodal 
coming from the public sector, coming from public transit or from cities themselves. So we have these kind of interesting combinations, but the problem just follows that these are still fragmented markets though. They're still subsets of the entire mobility ecosystem. So we're not seeing a combined multimodal mobility offer then that integrates all mobility services within oh, yeah. a geographic territory. And that is yet to be proven out. And I'm not sure if that will happen. And I think there's more, I would say, institutional and commercial reasons, not technological reasons, but commercial reasons why that won't play out. And I don't think it ever will. I think we're always gonna see a subset of multimodal offers of mass or of journey planners, yeah. or just of journey planners that have deep linking. Maybe that's good enough. Maybe we don't even need mass, right? David Hencher from the University of Sydney, who did the Sydney mass trial, the guy's a genius. He talked about this. He says, stop, one, stop calling it mass. And yeah. <laughs> two, maybe we don't even need mass. That maybe that's asking the wrong question. Maybe not all after, the city. Yeah, maybe at the end of the day, maybe we just need a journey planner and deep link, and maybe that's all the consumers need right now. Yeah. Who knows? We we cannot really track their preference, but mass has a value. But maybe we need to think about this in smaller chunks and do something that's a bit more pragmatic, that has more commercial traction, that brings the right providers together and delivers more quick wins versus being so overly ambitious of combining or uh, aggregating all the offers in an entire you know, um, universe. Whereas maybe we need to get a little bit more back to basics with mass. Maybe yeah. that's really the key. And it does not dilute the, the uh, value of mass, but it makes it one, a little bit more palatable to consumers, one. Two, it gets providers on board a lot quicker. Yeah. Three, it demonstrates commercial traction to investors much faster. And four, it, it gets governments more interested in being the, um, the stakeholder or steward of combined mobility. So it sells the offer to them more so that they just don't, you know, uh, they don't drop the ball and say, hey, that's not my, my world. Let the, the private operators do it. It gets them a bit more activated into it. It does not necessarily need to be, let's say, a walled garden. It doesn't have to be a monopoly. So that's a problem of just balls. We have these walled gardens that we're moving away from. We have interesting kind of combined mobility apps right now yeah. that they're decentralized or decentralized. I'm not going to speak about blockchain or any of that, but you know we have these different interesting combinations right now, and they're subsets. And I think that they're starting to gain traction. Or we have interesting offers like what Split is doing with, uh, you know, the super app model where they're just yeah. basically super powering existing apps. You know, that's the Southeast Asian model. That's like in Singapore and Indonesia and Malaysia. Yeah. That's the super app model. I'm not quite sure if that is is going to take root in Europe. I'm not sure yet. I'm I'm not saying I'm a skeptic, but it's yet to be seen if the super apps will conquer Europe or even North America. We'll see. I don't know. It could be. So there's all these different, you know, like. Uh, these different kind of um, derivatives of the same thing. But I think one thing I do think we need to resist and move away from is the walled garden and the monopolization. I think that's bad. So yeah. that would be the old model of maybe where, I don't know, it could be Uber or Lyft wanted to combine all mobility in one and have just a private app and they own the entire ecosystem. I think having all combined mobility into one private app where they own that entire consumer relationship has some issues to it. But then on the other side, the public sector could commit that same mortal sin too, that you yeah. have a public sector mass wall guard. And there are a couple cities in Europe that have done that too. Yeah. 
And I think that that's problematic as well, where they have a little too much control over uh, who's in and who's out. Yeah. So that, 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 that serves at this gatekeeper model um, where maybe the PTA or the municipality serves as, you know, the central authority uh, versus this, I would say, enabler of mass. They tend to kind of control monopolize. And I think we just need to be careful about that. And maybe this middle path where we have a mix of journey planners with deep link, we have yeah. combined multimodal offers where we have a subset. Or maybe if it's even decentralized, I'm not criticizing that too. It could be blo using blockchain where you have kind of a full, you know, uh, open ledger and you have different mobility providers using tokens and exchanging, you know, information and they decide to opt in or opt out. That's an interesting model too. Yeah. So it's yet to be seen, uh, but I think the uh, actual commercialization though is still a problem though. And it's yet to be seen how mass will be profitable. And in short order, Jasper, within the next year or two, um, these, I would say, business to business to consumer, business to government consumer are going to have to pencil out soon. Otherwise, mm. we're going to see more backlash. We saw the first wave of backlash about a year or two ago, and we're going to see more backlash until they can demonstrate profitability. So th the heat's going to be on pretty soon, I would say. Yeah, and that's a great point you mentioned about uh, that we don't need to create new monopolies by having some of no. these apps which has everything. And also, I agree with you, fully uh, about uh, that you don't always need a mass as a very big app which can offer you everything from one small Maybe thing to, to all probably you don't need you know and in some city probably just need a journey planner with a deep link what what i really agree with you is uh, i never if you asked me a year ago i would have never said that i'd be like no you're crazy no it, it has to be all combined <laughs> as one app uh you know has to be operated by the public sector or private and that's it i was very much fixated on that now i'm starting to have a, a change of thought. This is my own personal journey. I'm like, yeah. you know, maybe we get, maybe um, we get back to basics and do something a little bit simpler and and show some value there. Maybe that's yeah. okay. And let and let consumer choose what more they want to add exactly. on, what topic they want to add on, rather exactly. than forcing everything. Maybe I just want to discover and book. Maybe I don't want to pay. Maybe I just want to discover. <laughs> I don't know. You know, I mean, I do it myself in Google maps all the time. And I deep link and then order a service through another app or, I mean, I, you know, so I'm not saying my preference is better than others, but we do have to be cognizant that there's not a one size fits all. There's oh, yeah. not a one size fits all in Southeast Asia or in Europe or North America or even Latin America. We have to be very uh, heterogeneous about this. Oh yeah, yeah. People are so different, so you can't have a same model. Like I really like the point you mentioned in the previous question. Probably the way micro mobility is successful in Europe, it's not the model it can be replicated in US because I'm it's a different sure. market. I, it probably so, won't work in the US. So you you cannot no. say that okay, this is the only way it has to be done. No, it, no, 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 no. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm actually now that you mention it, I think the European model. Uh, you know, if you were to copy paste that in North America, it would not work. Yeah. But what I would like to say though is that the former North American model pre-COVID will not work either though. Yeah. So there has to be some difference in terms of how micromobility is to sustain itself, whether it's Lyft operating scooters and bike share, whether it's Uber expanding to that market, whether it's Bird or Lime or even, um, now Spin is a different story because they are now subsidized. First they were subsidized by Ford. Now they're subsidized by, <laughs> by Tier. So Spin, Spin is very lucky because they're an outlier. They're always subsidized, never by venture capital. They're subsidized by this behemoth, right? 
So spin gets a pass, right? They can just do what they want to do. Good for they're them. Smart. <laughs> they're smart, right? They, they, they're not chasing the next series D, series E round. You know, good for spin. I, I you know, they got it easy. But what I'm saying though is that in this world, they're gonna have to, they're gonna have to take a, a bit more of a friendly public sector approach. Um, we're starting to see that now in Chicago with the 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 scooter share pilot there and the emphasis on the scoring of points for uh, equity, of course, oh, yeah. we didn't talk about that, uh, scooter safety. So, um, you know, the hardware and software, the form factors of scooters that integrate, you know, whether it's uh, computer vision or GPS to uh, maintain sidewalk safety yeah. and, you know, geofencing and all this stuff. You got some really interesting um new startups working on that, like Drover AI, like yeah. Luna. Then you have Super Pedestrian with their kind of all-in-one with they acquired, I forget it was Nav Navitech or whatever. So the, the pedestrian scooter safety is a huge scoring points for the private mobility operators to operate in closed markets. So these, these companies are really smartening up and um, focused on these uh, qualitative metrics. And that's, wow. that's a good thing. It's a good thing. So we'll see, you know, we'll see what happens. But North America will definitely have to do it different than Europe. Yeah, no, I agree with you. And uh, now, you know, my next question is actually about uh, the different new innovation happening in mobility sectors. So you are very okay. active I, in the I ecosystem. On that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we just touched and on that. I can imagine that you must be meeting hundreds of industry experts, startup founders mm -hmm. and other mm -hmm. partners who must be sharing a mm -hmm. lot of new idea about future of mobility mm -hmm. with you, mm -hmm. talking about, okay, what can be done? What yeah. will be the future of mobility? So I would like to ask you which technological innovation you are more bullish and what is your view on other? For example, are you more bullish on electric vehicle? Are you more bullish on autonomous mobility, urban air mobility, e-scooter okay. micro mobility, demand responsive transport? Like what do you think is the future wow. and cool. what like probably that. will not grow that much? Okay. Um, okay. So let me talk about what will not grow that much. And then I'll go to, I'll talk about what I'm bearish and I'll talk about I'm bullish. Yeah. What will not grow that much as has been proven is personal autonomous vehicles. That is mm. not going to grow that much. So uh, I would say Uber, Lyft, Waymo's, Waymo's first offer of personal autonomy, what they were testing in Chandler, Arizona. They are doing a lot of stuff in Phoenix there a few years ago. Um, that, that is not going anywhere. That, that is, that is, that's a really slow burn. And investors have really lost their appetite to that. So um, it's, it's still a thing, but we've seen a massive shift away from that. And realizing that that's going to take a long time to generate traction. That's one thing. Yeah. Um, the others show promise. Um, let, let's go to from bearish to bullish to what I'm sort of really tepid about to what I'm really excited about. Um, next is urban air mobility. That's interesting, but I think it's a little bit further out than what is being promised right now. Hmm. I think in test hubs, I think, you know, my hometown of LA is testing that out. There, there's some interesting use cases. But we really need to scrutinize and think about what problems we're solving before we get to a point where are we just replacing um, helicopters for the wealthy like we see in Sao Paulo, yeah. uh, you know, in Latin America? I mean, is that what urban mobility is, where you just hop from one skyscraper to the next? Or is this really solving a real institutional demographic and quality of life challenge in a city? So I think that the technology is there and it can be deployed in closed environments and pilots, but I'm a bit skeptical outside of certain innovation districts, 
for some reason, my hometown of Los Angeles, LADOT loves to be this test bed of everything new. And I don't mean to, I don't mean to criticize LADOT, but man, it's like every shiny object comes out of there, whether it was yeah. MDS, whether it's urban air mobility, whether it's on demand, whether it's you know, uh, universal mobility access. Everything is happening in, in Los Angeles right now, my hometown, and they're using it as a test bed more for good than bad, but a, a bit of it is a lot of, uh, you know, yeah, it, it's a bit of Futurama. It's a bit of Futurama. And, and it, some of it is not as much focused on the needs of fellow Angelinos yeah. in, you know, disadvantaged communities throughout a city of 4 million people, my hometown. So just to kind of shine the light on Los Angeles, that's what's going on there. And urban mobility, I know that came from Eric Garcetti's administration. They're fo- fixated on that. Good for them, but I'm bearish on that right now. So let's okay. move on. Um, on demand, on demand, or microtransit, or DRT. It's the same thing, right? You guys call it microtransit. We call it DRT here. So I am bullish on DRT, microtransit, when it makes sense. Yeah. So when it makes sense, if it addresses transit deserts or gaps in transit districts of underserved communities of low to medium density urbanization, yeah. uh, suburban areas, areas that are uh, have un, um, underserved coverage, but not necessarily serving a high number of passengers or riders, but just covering a geographic catchment zone, a yeah. polygon, if you will, that basically checks off the box saying, you draw on a map, okay, let's say I'm here in Europe, and I'm looking at a map of, I don't know, Southwest Stuttgart, and it's, you know, a suburban community, and the Public Transport Authority realizes that their fixed route does not serve that community, so they want to introduce a new on-demand service. Now, that could be an interesting offer, or if they're trying to increase ridership on middle-performing fixed route bus and rail networks on demand makes sense for feeder buses you know eight to ten capacity shuttles on demand you know smartphone based and you want to bring people into those uh, multimodal hubs that's great but here is where the devil's in the details i don't like the north american model of microtransit and drt what has been done right now with many transit tech providers and i'm not even going to name the names but what's been done right now for the last three or four years and what's being lobbied hard is replacing fixed route with on-demand. That is really problematic because many public transit authorities in North America and mainly in the US, we're seeing this a lot in the Sun Belt right now, in Texas, North Carolina, Arizona, um, more of the uh, suburbanized auto-centric communities that really had a very strong relationship with the car. And they had a really minimal appetite for public transit in the first place are more than comfortable to privatize, shut down all of their fixed route and move it completely to privatize on demand. Yeah, I don't like it. And I'm very bearish about that. One, um, that's disingenuous. Two, that is a poor use of ta- taxpayer dollars. Yeah. And three, it's disin- well, I got back to disingenuous because it's promising two things. Uh, to quote Jarrett Walker um, from Portland, Oregon, it's promising ridership and coverage at the same time. Yet, as he says, that's geometrically impossible. You cannot do both. You yeah. can either deliver higher riders in a smaller geographic zone, or you can deliver fewer riders in a larger geographic zone on demand. But if you're basically pitching both, then you're hoodwinking the public sector, and you are going to be siphoning away public taxpayer dollars from operational budgets allocated on an annual basis 
of fixed route to on-demand. Mm -hmm. But we can have the best of both worlds if we do it right, which yeah. is why I'm medium to level bearish about uh, on-demand because what has been happening in North America is disingenuous. And we need to flip the script on that if, if yeah. that's going to succeed. Otherwise, um, we're going to have a bunch of cities with app-based on-demand services, fixed route are going to be canceled everywhere, and you're going to be moving less passengers, and you're going to be wasting taxpayer dollars. So as we move on the spectrum, what did we talk about? Was it micromobility? What were the other ones? Micromobility, you know, this uh, e-scooters and all, which yeah. you want to be sure. I'll save those for last because I'm probably the most bullish about like micromobility and even public transit. Um, but I would say as we move along, like um, robotics delivery, on-demand, uh, you know, uh, deliveries, I think that there's definitely a growth market there. Yeah. Um, I'm a bit less bullish on, on um, robotics delivery right now because I think that there's some pushback from certain cities in the challenge for the uh, right-of-way in the sidewalk yeah. space. And I think that um, there's some interesting robotics deliveries companies that are uh, hitting some um, headwinds on that right now. And I think that's a problem. So they're gonna have to resolve that and take a much more uh, interesting approach for how they uh, you know, pursue cities and their offer um, in kind of closed loop testing environments. That, that's yet to be seen. And that, that's kind of going the route of, of personal um, autonomous vehicles right now. I'm, I'm not uh, convinced of that. Where I'm getting more bullish now is commercial autonomy. Now commercial yeah. autonomy, like, um, Commercial truck, I would say, uh, tandem, uh, uh, I would say, use cases where you have autonomous trucks uh, traveling across 50, 100, 200 kilometers in really open ecosystems where they're able to train their models and deploy their solutions at scale. I think we're seeing very interesting trials in Netherlands, yeah. in Denmark, and even in North America. I think that's the path forward for autonomy is that um, on a commercial scale. Um, robo taxis are quite interesting in uh, Asia. Yeah. Um, certainly in Korea, South Korea, in Singapore, um, and in some other uh, areas is quite Even interesting. In China, China, the other China. I'm not sure if that's scalable in uh, Europe or North America. So I'm bullish in Asia on that, but not quite. Um, you know, on both sides of the Atlantic, it's yet to be seen. Um, I think the, the uh, policy and the public sector value needs to be proven to whether um, robo-taxis are going to serve a public good or are they merely just an automation scheme. So we'll, we'll see how that plays out. Yeah, I, don't I know agree yet. with you. That's, a, that's an important point you're highlighting. Yeah, th that gets down to the, the policy level and whether or not cities are going to allow it or they just do not want to automate that. that. That's really all it is. Whether or not they can do it, whether or not uh, Move it got acquired by Intel two years ago to prove out robo taxis in Asia is completely regardless of the point. Though the point is, hmm. our city's going to allow it. If they're not, then you can't scale it. So forget it, right? Yeah. So yeah. then, then we move on to. Um, I'll wrap up here. Micromobility um, and uh, that type of offer and public transit. I think that has the most promise, um, and I think that given the uh, upsurge of micromobility in the pandemic and it proving out its value as a last mile solution, it's proven that uh, it fills in these gaps. Not for yeah. everyone, not everyone's gonna wanna take a scooter, not everyone's gonna take a bike, but it's really proven to be this really interesting uh, offer in the mobility mix that is can be part of a menu of options that 
promote the 15 minute city, which I think is awesome. It's wonderful. Yeah. So let, let's promote that and let's stimulate that. And let's, let's uh, encourage that. So I think that investors are seeing that and they're going to see that by working well with cities, whether it's a European model or not, they're going to um, realize a return on their investment. And that is probably one of the most uh, promising offers in conjunction with, of course, the Holy Grail, what I work on, public transportation, of course. (laughs) So public transportation is not going anywhere, guys. I know we all said public transit was dead 18 months ago. Sorry, it's not going anywhere. It's coming back with a vengeance. And not only is it coming back with a vengeance, but it's coming back multimodal. It's coming back consumer-centric, and it's coming back smarter and and better with AI machine learning. And it's coming back with micromobility and more interesting offers that, that basically resolve the 15 minute city. So that's really just to cap off where I'm the most bearish versus the most bullish. The most bullish is smarter 15 minute cities with micromobility, active transportation and public transit. That is where we're at and that's where we're headed. No, I fully agree. And investors uh, are gonna see that. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the, I'm, I'm seeing a lot of money going into that area and public transport uh, is, is full now in, in right. Asia. Uh, already they have crossed their peak in 2019. So the, what are they doing in Europe? Too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In so that's all what, European countries now. It's, it's amazingly successful. So, yeah. I mean, that just, that's, that's proof in itself. Yeah, no, that, that's, that's my, my next question, because you mentioned about uh, uh, how the venture capitalists are more bullish now in this area. So you're working also as a board advisor in multiple startups and work mm-hmm. very closely in the ecosystem. Uh, yeah. You have seen a big uptick in the number of startups in Europe, including the mobility startup. So we've seen mm-hmm. in the last three, four years, there are so many startups has came out of Europe, which were which were not the case earlier. So no, how do you see this? Years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's really remarkable. So how do you see the startup ecosystem is evolving in Europe and how the mm-hmm. startup are changing the mobility landscape in Europe? And what is your advice to the founder who are starting or scaling up in Europe? Mm-hmm. How should they grow and work in Europe? Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, we, we've seen kind of a, a, a pivot or a shift away from more of the traditional models in mobility or kind of that mass 1.0 to offers that are definitely embracing multimodality as well as offers that now kind of resolve this uh, on-demand ecosystem. Uh, but in terms of the mobility startup world in Europe, I would say we're, we're seeing a lot more activity at the unicorn level now. Yeah. So we're seeing massive valuations, although it's softening a bit now, you know, with the whole inflation crisis. So we're hitting a bit of a plateau, but I don't see that softening in the long term. And I think that even if we're moving into a bear market right now, there is still massive opportunity for early to mid-stage startups to raise uh, venture capital right now. Yeah. So late stage startups, I think series D, series E are going to have some, you know, they're going to have some uh, headwinds. They're going to have some trials. But I think seed to like series A, series B, there's still a lot of opportunity in Europe. There's a lot of money sloshing around. And um, it, there's going to be a, uh, a longer time to uh, hit your term sheet and to close. Yeah. But if you make your pitch right, then um, you're going to realize some great successes as the market uh, heats up, hopefully as, you know, uh, the military conflict, uh, you know, declines in Europe and we get back to a little bit more normality. I think we're going to hit some really 
interesting economic times in the startup world in mobility here in Europe. And I guess yeah. my advice to you know founders and to even VCs is play the long game. Is play the yeah. long game. Uh, focus on these newer uh, hungry startups that are looking to extend their um, uh, their runway. Uh, they're looking to sustain their uh, offer, and they really have value to add um, in Europe. And that this is really where um, the market is starting to prove itself as a self-sustaining ecosystem, meaning that it's not just Sequoia Capital opening up an office in Berlin anymore from Menlo Park, San, Lo, you know, San Hill Road in Silicon Valley. These are local homegrown European VCs that oh, yeah. are self-funding and self-financing right now. That's So we're seeing a little bit, what we saw, which was good and bad up until COVID, let's say in 2019, was a lot of Silicon Valley, California-based VCs setting up shop in Germany and in Netherlands. And they have their operations still, you know, Sequoia Capital's here, they're still, they're still around. But what we're seeing a new trend is now that these massive valuations of, of unicorns are coming from European VCs. And yeah. I think that is the key takeaway is even if we're entering a bear market, play the long run because Europe has already uh, created that foundation for venture capital for future investment of new ventures going in forward. So. That would be my advice to founders is to understand that the European ecosystem is there uh, for the long term. Yeah. And, to be, to, and to VCs is to invest in these C, uh, seed, Series A, Series B, and look at the, at, look at the long run uh, outside of the current inflationary crisis because there is a massive talent, 50, 550 million people in Europe, and oh, it's yeah. a huge growth market. Um, for uh, new innovation just in the mobility ecosystem. I'm not talking about fintech. I'm just talking about mobility. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Play, play the long game here. This is the, the action is here. Fully agree. It's a, it's a big market. And uh, if you play long, you will always win the market because there are multiple players and multiple innovation. Uh, because I talk to a lot of these public transit agencies in Europe. And they have a very clear vision how they want to expand the reach of public transportation. And they understand the need for technology to do that. They know that they cannot just do it. Uh, so they need a good technological system to expand that. So I fully agree with you. It's playing a long game really well for them. And then one last thing I'd like to add to is there's some interesting hotspots and growth markets for VCs and founders to be aware of that are really popping up even during the inflationary crisis and the whole you know, uh, you know, pandemic and all that stuff um, that are coming under the horizon are certainly in uh, Central Europe. We saw some interesting activity yeah. um, in Austria and Hungary, um, even in Poland up until the pandemic and now. And quite honestly, Turkey is is oh, white yeah. hot. Istanbul, <laughs> I mean, it's crazy. I would have said the same thing about Berlin two years ago, but man, Turkey is off the charts right now. All the, obviously it's a mix between Europe and Asia, but you know, I'm gonna classify it as Europe for this conversation only because uh, if you're an investor, it's a growth market. Look at Turkey. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. And they have so much of talent. Uh, so the people talent. are so Untapped. smart. Which I, I mean, yeah. So I'm, I'm really bullish about that market, but the, the full European continent too. So yeah, there's a lot of stuff. So that's why, that's why you moved there because you uh, see, <laughs> you're well, playing no, a long I, game. I'm no, I moved here because my wife is Portuguese, right? She's <laughs> in Europe. <laughs> I, no, I just, followed her. I'm no, kidding. No, you know, I, I realized that after the fact. It's like, no, there's there's some interesting stuff. I, I, I was always led to be, no, America, US, North America. That's where the action is. No, there's 
There is some equal interesting activity happening now in the last two years here in Europe. That's my message to the audience. I, I would say everywhere, even if you go to Africa, it's going crazy. Africa, you know what's crazy. happening in look the innovation. Yeah, Senegal, look at Nigeria, Kenya, South and, Africa, Kenya. Oh my, Africa's super hot right now. Latin America. I mean, God, it's just amazing, and it's I love it. I, I love all this activity south of the equator. I'm super happy to see that. I just think yeah. it's, a, it's a great move for the world. Really good. No, that's great. That's great. So now, Scott, uh, we discussed so much about public transportation, technology, <laughs> latest mobility trend and all. But now I want to spend the last five minutes to learn a little more about you. And uh, oh. we have created this rapid fire question round. So oh, I guess okay. to ask you five questions. <laughs> I'm going to wear your hat right now. Give me yeah. your hat. Give <laughs> your turban. I'm going to wear it. Yeah. So we will ask you five questions and okay. you need to just answer them quickly. <laughs> okay. If you're ready, then I'll go for it. Sure. Yeah, whatever. Yeah. Okay. So my first it. question is, if you were not in the transit sector, what other profession you would have selected? Oh, gosh. Wow. Well, way back in the day, I was going to be like a psychology psychologist or therapist, even though I married a psychologist and therapist, which is <laughs> there's a reason for that. Then I just realized I just don't have that much patience for people. So that was like a, a past career, but I, I moved away from that. So my old major was sociology and psychology, but I moved into something a little bit more physical and, and uh, you know, uh, material, which is, you know, cities and maps. So yeah, that, that was, that was it. A, a previous but, but, career pursuit. <laughs> but you're still, your your better half of your life is psychology. So I can see it's yeah, very sociology. well. Yeah, <laughs> sociology. Like, that was my mind. I love sociology, the kind of the patterns of people, you know, group think, political psychology, economics, all that stuff. We, we could talk at end about that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, great. Great to hear that. that. Uh, now you travel so much around the world, which is your favorite city in the world? Oh gosh. Um, well, it's been mainly actually uh, Europe, uh, Latin America and North America, but so it hasn't really been Africa or Asia yet. So I can only speak to that, but hands down my favorite city. And I'm probably gonna get some backlash in this guys is Berlin. Berlin. I absolutely love Berlin. Berlin, Germany is my favorite city in Europe. And people are going, to go, why, Scott? What the hell? It's, that makes no sense. It's, you know, the wall. I mean, it's just, it's not that pretty. It's not like Paris. It's not Venice. It's not Copenhagen. I love Berlin because it's so imperfect. It's such a work in progress. It was so devastated by the First and the Second World War, especially the Second World War. And it's still this patchwork of neighborhoods and zones and sectors that are just in this flux of urbanism, old, new, you know, communist capitalist and it just it, it's just a mm. it's world history in a microcosm of one city crystallized and it just it has so much energy there bottled up um you know it, it's just it's mind-blowing it's really expanding especially for a, a puritanical north american like me who's so used to u.s cities that are very much you know orthodox and then being in a city like berlin it just and being an urbanist and wearing my urban planning hat being in berlin yeah, yeah it, it just had me to rethink all my assumptions of what a city could be. So yeah, I, I love it. Really. <laughs> and also it's, and a, it has it's one a of the best public transit networks in the world too. Oh yeah. Yeah. The, and also it's a startup capital of uh, the Europe. Absolutely. So, oh, I think that's a whole mobility the startup. Thing too, too. That's <laughs> I love it as well. So. You, you already answered my next question, but I still want to ask you, which city has the best transit network in the world? Well, uh, I don't know in the world. I was hearing recently that actually was it Dubai has two or three minute headways for its train network. Maybe, you know, I've never been to Dubai, but I heard it's yeah. super high frequency, which I wasn't aware, but 
I was completely blown away again when I went to Berlin or when I went to Copenhagen and I was seeing five minute headways. So five minutes between each train arriving at a station to yeah. use the transit planning geek term. So that for a North American is mind blowing because we North Americans, uh, Toronto is pretty good, right? Montreal is good and Vancouver, the rest of Canada and then US not so good. We're used to 30 minute headways or 60 yeah. minute headways, right? You're going to wait at the bus and you're going to wait, and you're going to wait and you're going to play Wordle and you're just going to wait, wait, wait. And eventually the bus is going to arrive, right? So you don't even have to think twice when I go to Berlin and I miss a train. Oh, no problem. That's the next one. It's, it's just natural. So having that be so conditional and so um, reliable, it's reliability, really. Oh, so yeah. it, it, reliability is the factor that nudges people to public transit. I, I like fare-free public transit. I like the pilots that they're doing in Boston and other U.S. cities. That's not going to move people to public transit. It's reliability and frequency. And quality service, that's what's going to move people. If you can't get that right, people are still going to drive or use their other forms of mobility. Yeah, I mean, you should plan a visit to Hong Kong or Tokyo. Sometimes mm -hmm. they have a 60 to 90 seconds of highway. Yes. So it's, it's okay. like right. you just yeah. blink your eyes and there is a next there. train. Bam, 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 bam. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's too frequent. I don't know. No, I'm joking. <laughs> you, have to, you have to have passengers wait a little bit, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's not true. It was in Tokyo. You know, they apologize if they're a few seconds late or something like that. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a like, national oh, headline. Sorry. If, they, if the trains is late, it's a national headline. So. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so it's a, <laughs> it's a big yeah. Uh, so so, so my next question is uh, and maybe a little bit tricky for you is like which is your favorite startup in the mobility sector you mean as a company as a company startup in the mobility sector wow huh um i know it is assist to be but know. what what yeah, other <laughs> I don't know. um yeah uh, I would say just not even because it's even unique or innovative what they are, but just their success as a startup uh, is bolt. Bold. It's bolt. Yeah. It just, it's amazing where they came from to where they are now. And just the, ma the massive amount of, of capital they've been able to raise, the massive amount of cities they serve, of passengers they have in their platform, and that they just offer a service that makes uh, the public and private sector happy. And, and yeah. they have a really recognizable brand, these green and white scooters, these green and white cabs or bikes. I mean, they're where it's at right now, it's Bolt. I mean, yeah, Tier and Voy, but Bolt is really unique because this really scrappy startup in Estonia, and they played the Silicon Valley startups at their own game 10 times better, 10 yeah. times better. It's Bolt. Yeah, because they were earlier competing with Uber and they were everybody written them off. Like they said, okay, Bolt is gone and they came back. Uh, they proved they came everyone back. wrong. And, yeah. they made Bert, and they made Bird look bad during Bird's firing of 300 people via Zoom call back two years ago during COVID. And actually uh, Bolt made like a public statement saying, we do, not, uh, we do not lay off any of our employees, COVID or no COVID. They made it a point that they value their employees. So yeah. by taking that qualitative approach they hit all the right marks. So I have massive respect for them in that way. Oh, that's great. No, it's a good yeah. answer. I, I love that uh, company too. I mean, I love all the mobility startup, but yeah, I they are doing some other ones. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So my last question is, if you can change one thing in your life, what would it be? Oh gosh, what would it be? Oh man. Um, yeah. I would say, what would it be? It would have been, being a world traveler at an earlier age, 
not being forced by my wife to move overseas when I was 43 years old and having only visited two or three countries, but having the world experience when I was in my 20s and 30s and mm -hmm. kind of getting out of that American corporate world maybe a decade or two earlier would have made me a little bit wiser and a little bit more worldly at this age of 48. Although you could say better late than never, and I needed to kind of be pushed out of my comfort zone by my adventurous wife, who's Portuguese American, which I love dearly. But I think that in hindsight, had I taken that leap earlier, even before I was married, I would have been a different person. But you know what? Everything happens for a reason right now. And I'm oh, yeah. so happy that I have this experience living abroad now and I wouldn't change it for the world. But yeah, I would say I would have only done this maybe like 15 years earlier. That's the only thing I could have changed. Yeah, but that that's great. Still, like you said, uh, better than now than than never. So at least you're doing yeah. it, and you're. We couldn't wait till we were going to retire. We had to do it in our middle age, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's what we did. That's what we. Did. Yeah, a lot so, of people just think about. It. And then I think there is a fact. Or they wait till they retired. You know, oh, I'm going to visit Europe, or I'm going to retire in Spain or Portugal when I'm 68 or 70. No, life's too short for that. Oh, do yeah. it now. Do it now. I, I don't do know it. if you know this fact or not. Like the only 30. Three or thirty-four percent American hold in passports. You know, I know that very well, and it depresses me every single day, Jasper. Don't <laughs> mind, don't mind, please. It's it's a national shame. I'm sorry. I, I no, it's, I was uh, hoping it's... I was hoping you wouldn't bring that up because you're absolutely right. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I know. But, but more, that's more of my fellow country people need to uh, go travel abroad. outside. I, that's my only message. Just and, go and see, see, and see, see how world see is so different. See for yourself. Yes. Yeah. No, I agree. Thank you so much, Scott. I mean, you, I Gaspar. really love this session and this really fun. love the conversation and sharing your knowledge it. experience. I mean, you have so much of knowledge. Good, you are outside well, now. You do too. <laughs> <laughs> to learn from you. It's, it's both directions. <laughs> no, thank you so much. It's a great fun. Uh, fun. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We will be inviting some other inspiring guests in the coming week. You can subscribe to this podcast online to get the notification for the next episode. If you like this podcast, please don't forget to give us a five-star rating as it will help us to spread our message. If you have any feedback or suggestion for this podcast, please do write to us at info at the rate mobility-innovators.com. I look forward to see you next time. Thank you.